Welcome back to another exciting episode of DSLR Film New Podcast. As you can tell, my voice is a little bit out. If you're watching the picture, my nose is red. I've been blowing my nose all night. I am a little bit sick, but that doesn't mean we can't get a show out for you. Mitch is joining me from Planet5D.com. Mitch, what have you been up to, sir? Planet 5D. Planet 5D rocks. Uh, lots of exciting stuff going on this week. Cameras galore. No, wait, that's not true. That was last week. This uh, week is a lens week, I think. Lens week, definitely lots of lenses announced this week. And uh, several cool things that we're going to talk about later. And something that I just thought about that we should have put in the show notes, but maybe you can talk about that on Sunday with... Uh, Devin. <laughs> Devin. Dang right? it. Yes, it's Devin. Um, before we get started, though, folks, I wanted to mention that the Cine Summit is coming up very soon, March 1st and 2nd. That is 10 different directors talking on different subjects that are near and dear to their heart. That is a free conference on March 1st and March 2nd. Swing over to dslrfilmnoob.com slash Cine Summit to check that out. There's a link in the show notes. Again, that is free March 1st and 2nd, so be sure to check that out. Mitch, you have anything to add to that? If you if you've got any kind of time to show up and do stuff, the videos are on demand. Uh, there's five on on the first, and then five on the second. You can watch them anytime during the day, so there is no schedule. But once you've missed the day, they're gone, or you have to buy an upgrade uh, to watch them again. But so you can watch them anytime you want on those two dates, which I think is Tuesday and Wednesday, March first and March second. I believe that is a Tuesday and Wednesday. Uh, so. Sometimes next week, right? Yeah, sometime so, next week. It's free, so sign up. All right, moving on down the line for myself, I, other than sickness, have been playing around some more with the 8mm f1.8 Olympus lens. You'll see a post up on DSLR Film Noob about that. Loving the wide-angle fisheye style. Uh, this lens is super close focus range. I think it's less than three inches, so I've been bumping into things on accident, and it's already got some smears across the front and a little bit of a ding on the element, so uh, good job there right now on the live webcam that is actually this is right here the <laughs> the olympus 8 millimeter f18 i love this lens great lens one of the best wide angles i've played around with on micro four thirds bodies now i think with that in mind mitch you think it's time for the news it's time for the news, time for the news. wrong sample Time for the news. If you can tell, I'm uh, doped up on medication right now and chewing on some Sepacol cough drops that are making my mouth go completely numb. The first thing on the list here is actually the 5D Mark IV. Now, Mitch and I have actually started talking about that. We're hitting this first thing, Mitch. You you okay with that? Yeah, 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 yeah. I just, I'm, I'm just so excited they finally announced the 5D Mark IV. Literally in the show uh, show notes, it said, "Dude, 5D Mark IV." They didn't actually announce it yet, did they? This is basically oh. like leaked information about the 5D Mark IV. Uh, apparently, yeah. according to canonrumors.com and a few other sources, uh, 4K will be coming to the 5D Mark IV. Uh, that means that you will have a 4 and a 4, 4K video shooting. Do you think they're going to implement the same uh, MJPEG format that is used in the 1DC series of cameras, Mitch? Oh my gosh, I hope not. <laughs> But, hey, they probably know how to do that in software, so that's probably an easy thing for them to do, right? 
Yeah, that's true. And they already have the chipset and basically everything put together with that higher end camera. They've practiced that for a while. And yeah. that is sort of a tradition of Canon to release features in their higher models and then slowly trickle them down into their lower models, like the ADD, which now has the headphone jack from the 5D Mark III. Now, I didn't do it. Now, while I'm talking about that, I, I wanted to bring this up really quick, and somebody brought this to my attention. I didn't even think about it. The ADD, when we talked about it last week, is a thousand, like four hundred dollars esque, maybe a thousand two hundred dollars, for about eighteen hundred to two thousand dollars. You can buy the camera that I don't care for, but think is a really good value for that price, the uh, C100 from Canon. And that includes XLR inputs, headphone jacks, and all the other things that you would want out of a video camera if you were intending to use this for video. Not a stills camera at all, but do, right. you, think, uh, do you think that would eat away at the market share of both the uh, 5D Mark III, the up-and-coming 5D Mark IV, and, of course, the ADD? There's... There's people who want specific things. Uh, I don't think a lot of people even consider the C100 anymore. I mean, is that low in price? Yeah, I was just looking on eBay, and wow. there's some sold for $1,800, $1,700, uh, $2,000, and some of those even include the AF upgrade. Wow. Which is pretty impressive. And, yeah. you know, now everything's starting to get 4K. Do you, when do you think 1080p will go away? <laughs> uh in the united states or the rest of the world um <laughs> well north I mean, korea is already probably at 8k right or yeah let, let, let's there and there was that 6k camera that was announced um or rumored or whatever yeah the gh5 is rumored to have 6k shooting which would right. uh, be That's a poor man's com competition with the uh red series cameras but let's 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 continue to go back and realize that for those people who were watching stuff through their TVs, through traditional cable, uh, ESPN is still most often coming down your tube at 720. It's not even coming down at 1080. Uh, so as much as we'd love to talk about the, the rise of 4K in terms of consumer content... The pipes just aren't big enough in the United States to get all that content down. Unless we go to end up with H.265 or, or some other method to compress these suckers down to reasonable content, I don't know. Now, speaking of that, did you notice that uh, recently Netflix announced they were moving all of their encoding to Amazon's S-Cloud? So they'll be using all Amazon servers and virtual servers in order to do all Netflix service and no longer have their own servers in-house? No, I didn't see that. Yeah, really interesting. And that kind of brings me back to the H.265 scenario. Uh, with that sort of computing power, they could really theoretically start uh, taking care of that transcoding now and, and getting acquisition for new films in 4K. I mean, nowadays, and probably in the last uh, two or three years, a lot of things have been shot in much higher resolution and then you know released at 2K as opposed to... Uh, 4K, and they've been done in post in, in 2K. So the, that's the entire timeline and workflow. Uh, it wouldn't be very hard for them to spend, you know, half a million dollars and go back and, you know, remaster it in 4K and then release the golden, uh, you know, whatever special limited director's cut edition of all these movies. You know, maybe that's Criterion would be the way to go. And you pay for a 4K service like Netflix or maybe a higher tier version of Netflix. 
that would take care of something like that for you. What do you think? Would you pay for that? My TV out there that I paid for three years ago, four years ago, five years ago. God, how long is it? <laughs> uh, it's 1080 and I love it. I mean, I sit far enough away that even if it was a 4K TV, I couldn't, my eyeballs wouldn't resolve the quality. So why would I upgrade to 4K? Now, my monitor that I sit a foot and a half away from, yes. Uh, my question is, let me ask you this. Isn't Vimeo served off of Amazon S3? I believe it is. Have so. you? Do you have trouble with getting uh, Vimeo video to play in the evenings? I do, but I think so, that may so. be a budgetary issue because Amazon has all the virtual servers you can shake a stick at, but yeah. the more you want to spin up for you to operate a task, the more moolah... You have to pay Amazon for that uh, uh, value. So Vimeo so could be theoretically uh, you know, throttling their feed to their customers. Could be. Because I tell you, I, I really hate uh, visiting Vimeo in the evenings because I can hardly ever get anything to play. Well, even uh, YouTube, if you start uh, trying to find 4K videos and watching those on YouTube, you will... You'll spend quite a bit longer, even with my high, high uh, band internet. You know, I've got a hundred meg down, hundred no, hundred and fifty meg down, and like uh, fifteen or twenty up. I still have to wait for buffering times on a four K video on YouTube, and you know, I always have to wait for buffering times on Vimeo. I don't know if I'm just cursed. Like, it's not just the evenings for me. It's anytime I watch a Vimeo video, I might as well just hit download and wait an hour until it's done downloading and then watch it from, you know, my desktop. It never seems to work for me. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So 5D Mark IV, 4K video. We've gone all over the place on 4K. Uh, Do you think they'll add any other high-end features from its bigger brother, the 1DC? Well, you you can... You can expect that it won't be 60 frames per second 4K, right? It would only be 30 or 24. Absolutely. Um, and motion JPEG may be a good assumption there. Um, it would be, I mean, because otherwise they're just cannibalizing the 1DX Mark II. So they got to leave some features out. I, You know, you and I are both said for a long time that we didn't think the 5D Mark would have 4k so if this is indeed true that's significant and it's and at least we won't be bashing canon <laughs> constantly going well damn they they put out a new camera and doesn't even have 4k in it uh at least we won't have to be doing that now one other pat- patent that is interesting from canon and this is up on canon rumors and from north star it is a i said that right north star North Light. Light. Thank you, Mitch, for correcting me there. Um, this is a patent on a moving image sensor, uh, similar to the in-camera image stabilization that we see on Sony bodies. And you can see here it's showing a system for moving the sensor about in three axes. Actually, it looks like five axes. So full five-axis image stabilization. No, 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 no. No, is no. that not what you're seeing? I'm seeing up, down, left, right, and side to side. No, 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 no. If I'm sorry, you didn't get a chance to read this because I just found this. Apparently not. I'll let you fill it for me, Mitch. Um, and it, and I'm looking at the Northlight uh, Northlight Images dot co dot uk just to give the full blessing. Thank you. Uh, 
it bends uh there's there's the blue element is bending in the back and it's just a forward and backward motion to assist autofocus this is not a five axis kind of deal to make the sensor stabilization it's just for assisting for autofocus and uh i don't know not exactly how much that really helps so wait a second is it bent it's bending this plane on the back of the sensor is that what's going on then it, that's what it says right here it says it bends to move the sensor back and forth so that's, micro micro focus adjustments forward and backwards on the fly hmm. to improve contrast autofocus all right I mean, that's, scratch that's all that five axis image stabilization <laughs> bunk when i first saw the image I was like, ooh, five-axis image stabilization, that'd be great. Um, I'm no longer excited about this patent at all. This looks silly. Uh, <laughs> let's move on to the state. But, but, but I did, did want to specifically bring it up for the mere fact that you and I have talked about how Canon is really missing the boat by not putting five-axis stabilization in. And if this patent indeed is coming forwards, and maybe it's, maybe it's awesome technology which will improve the hell out of autofocus speed, uh, maybe it will be great, but it's certainly not what we were hoping for in terms of five-axis stabilization, which is why I wanted to talk about it. Now, you pay a lot of attention to the patents that come out from Canon. How no, long do you think it would take yeah. for them to implement this into an actual body? Are we talking four years, five years, six years? Uh, typically, no. I mean, it's again, with patents, patents are totally, you know, Apple gets billions of patents and sometimes the content, the, the functionality comes out and sometimes it doesn't. Um, Canon Rumors and Northlight, they pay, both of those guys pay a lot of attention to patents. And I mean, sometimes they will hold off on getting a patent until they're just about ready to issue the technology. So they don't want to give heads up to other companies, you know, that are, potentially going to borrow the technology or do something similar. So it, it could be imminent. It could be five years out, like you said. We don't know. Or never. Now, I'm jumping around a little bit in the show notes, Mitch, and uh, oh. I apologize for that. But next thing up, I would like to talk about another camera before we roll into the state of the camera market in general. I'd like to talk about the Nikon DL series of cameras. Uh, if you're not familiar with Nikon, it's because we don't talk about it very much on this show. They don't generally have anything that like, piques my interest. But the DL 24 to 85, they have the 18 to 50, and uh, I cannot remember for the life of me what the numbers are on the third version of this particular camera setup. But basically, this uh, DL 24 to 85 is using a one-inch Sony sensor, most likely. Uh, this has a zoom range of 24 to 85, f1.8 to f2.8 on that zoom range, clean HDMI out. And it's priced at $649. Now, this camera is about $300 cheaper than the X100 Mark IV, which is a similar... I want to say the tech in these two are very, very similar. Now, the RX100 is skinny, and the Nikon DL24-85 is a little chunkier. But Mitch... Do you think that's uh, enough to make you save three hundred dollars on the Nikon DL twenty four to eighty five? I don't know. I don't have a clue. <laughs> oh no! What just happened? Am I here? Yes. Okay. I just heard a click. 
the last time that happened, the show shut down for some reason from <laughs> from it's YouTube. Live. We're live. Yes, we are. Okay. Anyway, back to this particular camera. What I, what interests me about this is I've actually I've moved to the point and shoot camp, and that's why I wanted to bring this up before we talk about what, what are you wanting? You've moved to a point and shoot as opposed to a real camera. Oh no, no, not completely. But I'm well, going to tell you right now that my LX100 probably represents 60%, maybe 70% of my shooting time. Like this really? camera right here, because it is so convenient, tiny, small, easy to carry with me, uh, requires very little in the way of extra equipment. When I need to go out and shoot something and it's not high priority or it's something that I'm getting paid very little for, a lot of times I'll just take this with me. And this, if it's not my main camera, it'll be my second camera. The wide range on this F1.8 is enough to give you good bokeh in the background. The uh, long range at 75 millimeters is enough for some portraits and things like that. And just general walk around shooting, it's good to ISO 3200. Now, with the Sony RX100 Mark IV, the lovability of that camera is that you can slide it in your pocket and have a lot of the features that you would get out of your pro camera for uh, you know, something that you can carry around with you. And my Canon 5D Mark III, which I do, do still shoot on, is right behind me right here. This thing is heavy as crap. It's, this weighs you know, several pounds. I've got the uh, 16 to 35 millimeter F2.8 uh, on here, and this is heavy as heck. You know, Carrying this around, wrapped around your neck or on your arm or on your shoulder or in your bag, it weighs you down. It weighs you freaking down so much that I, I've been getting shoulder pains and you know neck pains and things like that. And I've even talked to a couple of photographers that have had to have um, some sort of special surgery on their neck because it's cut off blood flow and damaged some nerves in their neck from carrying their camera around all day. Now, I'm not saying I'm giving up my full-frame cameras at all, but when this represents 60% of my shooting, what does that mean for photography in general? Are we going to move to a point-and-shoot society where they could fit you know, a full-frame sensor or a really freaking awesome sensor into a little body like this? And the Nikon DL24-85 to is just another example of that. Well, I think what you've just done is segued into the next story, haven't exactly. you? Exactly. <laughs> That's where you're supposed to jump in and say, let me talk about the state of the camera market today. And Mitch, this is one of your stories, so I'll throw it to you, sir. Uh, I, I found this... Um... My God, I forgot where I found this. Oh, it was Canon Rumors, actually. Good old Craig over at Canon Rumors. Uh, it's it's fascinating, and, and we're always interested in seeing uh, what's going on in the camera market. You and I talk a lot about uh, mirrorless cameras, and we talk about you know video cameras, and and this particular chart that was generated by LensVid.com, which I'd never heard of before. Uh, apparently, every year they go out and look at the camera industry to to put up some facts and figures. Uh, I find it fascinating that we're really focused on, like, the first chart. And I, for those of you who are watching, if you go to Canon or Planet 5D, you can see the chart. Uh, yeah, there's a, a full link in the show notes for that, so... DJ post recognized the fact that uh, for some reason the chart is the image is not showing up on my blog post and I got to fix that. Uh, but uh, <clears throat> the very first section in the upper left shows you know camera sales have dropped seventeen percent and that's and they're looking at uh, compact cameras or or I'm sorry 
non-interchangeable lens cameras and interchangeable lens cameras, that's easy for me to say, uh, dropped a lot in, in 2015. But if you look at the charts in kind of detail, uh, especially the one on the far right, uh, where they show the interchangeable lenses versus the non-interchangeable. Uh, if you look at the, the real numbers and they go all the way back to 2009, there was a big spike in 2012 where there were a lot of cameras sold. But if you, if you compare 2009 to 2015, the market is still up overall in terms of camera sales. So there was a camel hump spike, sold a lot of stuff, and it has come down in market share. Uh, but a lot of that is because, if you look at the details, because they're counting point and shoot kinds of cameras. And we all know that the smartphones have totally taken over that market. And, and except for DJ and his RX100 or whatever that was, <laughs> people aren't buying quote unquote point and shoot cameras anymore. So right. where I want to go with that particular uh, idea is that people aren't buying cheap Walmart brand, you know, low entry level point and shoot cameras anymore. But I feel like there is a new market carving itself out for high end point and shoot right. cameras that's really kind of separated itself from the bulk of the, you know, that generic gray color camera that you find on every store shelf for $100. And now we're getting these sort of niche, large sensor cameras that are really beautiful and sort of, you know, I know four photographers now that if, as soon as they saw my LX100, they went out and bought one. <laughs> so maybe that's why it's evening out. Is that the, is that a dollar amount for sales or is that a number of bodies only? Uh, I'm, I believe this is number of bodies, uh, total amount of cameras manufactured. So yes, it is in, in, in body numbers because it's hard to quantify dollar numbers because the prices of things change all the time and, you know, how that goes. One of the most important uh, things that I noted from this is that top center section uh, in terms of comparing mirrorless to DSLRs. And it's fascinating to me that we keep talking about how fabulous the mirrorless market is. But according to this chart, mirrorless is only 9% of the camera market, which kind of surprised me. And that's up from 7% in 2013. Uh, it just, I mean, we keep constantly saying, well, mirrorless seems to be the way to go. And you, you listen to a lot of people in the market and they're going, oh, mirrorless, mirrorless, mirrorless. But it's not as big a hunk of the market as I suspected it might be. And it hasn't grown that much. I was surprised that number wasn't bigger simply because of the A7 series sales that have been going on. I'm not sure if that doesn't count into the mirrorless range. It, it seems like it should if it does not. Yeah. It, it, what you have to realize, though, and, and I think people tend to forget that, or at least those of us who are listening in our environment, is we typically are video talking about filmmaking and video with these cameras. And in the overall market, which this particular uh, website was highlighting is the overall market, uh, photographers don't seem to be jumping to mirrorless as much as maybe filmmakers are. If you looked at this in terms of a filmmaking only segment, and it's going to be impossible to figure out what those numbers are, 
maybe it is a more significant impact for mirrorless than these numbers indicate, which is what I think you're asking. Yeah, and for me personally, there is a different look, especially for photography, with a full-frame sensor versus a micro four-thirds sensor. And it's significant enough that if you Jones for a wide-open 50-millimeter F1.2, uh, you will not get that same look out of a micro four-thirds body. Uh, right. That's just how it is. But your trade-off is then convenience and size, uh, lens size and selection in general. Uh, there's a lot to choose from in the micro four-thirds market. Uh, that said, anytime I go out with uh, professionals shooting photography next to my video production, it's either Nikon or Canon sitting on their tripod with the you know the obvious big white lens hanging out uh it's not just uh it's not in, i don't see hardly any people shooting micro four thirds in that professional environment so and maybe that's just my american centric point of view i have not been to any uh, european uh, football games or anything of that nature so i can't tell you but here i don't see a ton of and in fact people ask me all the time oh hey you shoot micro four thirds can i see your your gh4 i'd love to see that and it almost becomes this like show and tell and they're like oh that's really nice oh that's great oh uh f12 looks like this on this camera well i don't know maybe i should stick with my canon lens you know right and and that's what you run into all the time so maybe there's more of that than we think simply because we're knee deep in the market all the time. We think everybody wants and needs a micro four thirds, but maybe it's just not as popular. I, and, and it would be fabulous to see those kind of breakdowns. And I have not found anything like that because none of these charts really talk about sensor size. They just purely talk about how many bodies in this case are being sold. Or if you look at the other ones, they typically go on dollar figures, which is, like I said, impossible to judge anything. So breaking things down into smaller smaller uh, groupings would be fantastic. I just don't know how to go get that data. And before we move on, unless you, I mean, you're starting to say something. Nope. Continue. <laughs> the, the other thing that's really fascinating in this chart to me is, and it typically ends up being a small little blip in terms of conversation, but you and I keep talking about this, and that's the second little chart that says lenses dropped 3% in 2015. If you, go, again, look at the overall trend, yes, there was a big blip in 2012 and when we had a big market upgrade there between 2009 and 2012 where it went from 15 million to 31 million. But look at the fact that in 2009, there were 15 million lenses sold. And in 2015, as 21.5 million. So it's still an increase over 2009. So the camera market is still increasing. And you and I talk about this all the time, that the money's in lenses. That's where the profit margin is uh, for these vendors. Uh, you know, Canon typically sell, makes and sells bodies in order to sell the lenses, just like the old uh, story about uh, razor blades and razors, you know. The only problem lenses I have with that, though, is that once you buy a lens, you're kind of there isn't an upgrade cycle, whereas Correct. bodies there's always an upgrade cycle. So are lenses like the one-time purchase, and then the bodies are the continual revenue stream? Is that how you see it? 
they are much more an investment. We talked about that quite a bit as well. Uh, but typically, when you start becoming uh, really psyched into this, what you end up with is, and DJ, you're an aberration, no offense. Ain't no problem. <laughs> but typically, most people will have one, maybe two bodies, and they'll have four, five, ten lenses in their kit. So on it, yes, you may you may refresh your body more often. Uh, that sounds like a health thing. <laughs> I take a shower sometimes. Uh, but but again, if they're making more money and they're selling you five lenses, then they're happy. And of course, if you happen to refresh your body more often than that, that's gravy for them. I mean, not, I'm not saying they're not making a profit on the bodies. They are. But I think anyway, the to me, that almost explains the drop off in lens sales is that during the big increase in body sales, people were scouring for, you know, the, the big prime lenses that they want the good zooms that they want. And once you have that collection put together, it's it stays pretty stagnant. It, you know, you don't sell a lot of those lenses. You don't buy more lenses. There are occasions where some, you know, really sexy offering, maybe you go from the 85 F1.2 to the Mark II version, which they significantly increase the autofocus accuracy and it makes it worthwhile. But, you know, I've had my 51.2 for years and years, and I just finally sold my 17 to 35 millimeter F2.8, which I've had since probably 2000 or 2001. And that, that lens was discontinued in the, the late 90s. Right. And so with that kind of, uh, you know, uh, uh, maintaining of, of your lens collection, uh, maybe that's why it's dropping off. People bought all the lenses they need, and now they don't need the lenses anymore. It's quite possible, especially with the fact that, that there was a large influx in new bodies being sold back in 2012. Um, overall, though, I think the summary is that the, the camera market had a bubble, and the bubble's decreasing we're still higher than where we were um, eight years, seven years ago. Uh, lots of good stuff still coming out. We're moving, obviously, to more mirrorless and smaller bodies, like you say, for some people. I don't like the smaller bodies at all. I can't shoot with them. I don't like them. Now, how do you feel about the weight, Mitch? Because the weight for me has been the biggest issue. Uh, otherwise, I love my full-frame bodies. Does it, does it wear you down after a while when you're wandering around all day? It it can. Um, I'm obviously not shooting with the 1DX size full body. Uh, but when I go shoot um, like the drumline that I've been shooting, <clears throat> excuse me, gateway drumline, uh, I'll shoot for three or four hours. And I don't actually put a, hand, or a shoulder strap on it anymore. I just carry it around in my hand. Uh, I, I don't know why I've sort of just abandoned the shoulder strap concept and I just like holding on to that thing. It does get heavy. I'm not shooting professionally eight hours a day, five days a week, like many people are either. So maybe I don't have the same kinds of problems physically. Uh, mentally, I have a whole other issues, but that's a whole nother. <laughs> the Actually, on my 6D body, which is my lighter sort of carry around full frame body, I have one of those leather hand straps now as my go-to uh, choice for carrying the camera around all day. Uh, it saves my shoulders, and I, 
I try to pick one or two lenses that I absolutely can't live without for the entire day's shooting and avoid carrying excess lenses because I was falling into that trap for a while where it's like, oh, well, I have a 24-1.4 or I have a 24-70 to 70 zoom. I should carry both in case I want to shoot in really low light. And then you use the 24 F1.4 maybe once, but you've been carrying around an extra two pounds in your pack that entire day and your shoulders hurt and you're sore. Now I limit myself to one zoom and one prime. And it's usually the 51.2 and the Tamron's 24 to 70 F2.8. That way I have a good zoom range and I have a single, uh, you know, shallow depth of field monster that I can shoot portraits and things like that with. Um, Still, this though... This is the lightest. I love this guy. And the Nikon DL24 to 85 does look very attractive for those of you searching for a companion piece for vacations and whatnot with your DSLR cameras. Now, before we move on, I want to bring this up one more time. The Cine Summit is coming up March 1st and 2nd, and that will be 10 directors talking about the things that are near and dear to their heart. You can find out more at dslrfilmloop.com slash Cine Summit. Be sure to check that out. Again, that's free March 1st and 2nd. Sign up for their newsletter to find out more about previous events, new events, and things that are coming down the pipe. dslrfilmloop.com slash Cine Summit. Now, next up on the list here, Mitch, is actually some lenses. We just talked about the sales of lenses. We've got the... And actually, this is kind of interesting. I, I did want to talk about the... I took a couple of lenses out because there were there were probably five or six lens announcements. But the Tamron lens is a 85mm f1.8 with VC, which is Tamron's flavor of image stabilization in the lens. And this lens will... St- I put a price in here of $599. That's not actually accurate. That's the price that they're charging for all their other uh, image-stabilized lenses. But... Mitch, what do you think of this 85? Would you buy this over the Canon 85 F1.8? Well, it's hard to say because we don't have this available yet, right? We haven't seen anything from it. Interesting, uh, there are not many, if any, right? Uh, 85s with any kind of image stabilization. Uh, There is one... Uh, camera lens out there and it is that uh that sony uh uh zeiss something crazy it's like boit b-e-t-o or something like that you know the the crazy Uh big sony lens that's the only other one i know that's in the 85 range that has image stabilization so so that's what makes this significant and interesting um we don't know how much uh, I mean typically when when typically some my brain just went dead. Uh, what I was starting to trying to say is that typically they give us like an F uh, <laughs> well, okay, so Canon has offered up a couple of IS lenses, but they're F28 or so. Uh, right. they're they're not very wide aperture lenses. They're a little smaller in they're not quite as sexy as an F1.8 would be, where Tamron's kind of winning in this category is they're offering image stabilization at a 35mm F1.8 range, a 45mm F1.8, and now an 85mm F1.8 range, which is kind of, it's not dominating, but it's definitely a very attractive set of primes that all have in-camera or in-body image stabilization. And that's sort of aimed towards filmmakers, and that's what Canon was aiming their lenses towards but 
Canon made the mistake of including the STM style motor drivers as opposed <laughs> to the ultrasonic motor driver system, which means that they could not move as much glass. And because of that, their rather expensive $600, $700 range of IS primes are uh, F2.8 or so across the board, uh, whereas Tamron has uh, avoided that downfall of STM motor drive systems and been able to uh, push this up to F1.8. Do you, do you have any Tamron lenses? I used to shoot Tamron years and years ago, but I they had that thinking adapter that you had to have in order to put it on your Canon lens or in your body, which obviously they've gotten rid of. I have two uh, Tamron lenses in my collection, the Tamron 24 to 70 F 2.8, which is a excellent lens. Um, originally when that first came out, I, I was holding onto my Canon 24 to 70 and I worked with Dave Dugdale on a few, a few bits and he showed me his and I kind of fell in love with it and ended up buying one. The image stabilization in that is very good. The lens is arguably sharper than the first generation 24 to 70 that I had and AF and everything else has come a long way since the old days of the adapter systems. Um, mine works great. The other one I have, I believe is the 24 to 75 and I have that in a Sony mount. And it works as good as any Sony lens on a Sony body, so AF is abysmal at best. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> you know, I, the lens, there's nothing wrong with it. They're, they're very decent lenses, and both Sigma and Tamron in general have come quite far in yeah. the lens department in the last 8 to 10 years. Probably 10 years ago when I started buying interchangeable lens kits for filmmaking or, uh, you know, adapting to um, – the HV20 and some of these other things, uh, those lenses weren't very good and no one really had much good to say about it, but they occupied the three to $500 range in the market. Now the uh, Tamron lenses and the Sigma lenses are all pushing up into the $1,000 range and people are more than happy to pay those prices for them. Is it really that much better quality? With IS? No, no, not not with IS. With spending that much more on uh, on, on lenses, uh, so get away with the cheap stuff, huh? Yeah, okay. There, there are compromises that I personally am willing to make. The fifty one four is extremely light compared to the fifty one two. I would gladly uh, recommend the fifty one four as the lens to buy over the fifty one two simply because it's lighter, it works just fine, image quality is very good, it's sharp, and it's way less expensive, and you can invest your money in other things. Especially if you're looking at filmmaking, you don't necessarily always want F1.2. Where right. F1.2 comes in handy is when it's so dark I can barely see, I can dial up to F1.2 and still get an image in that creamy, out-of-focus, you know, lights is, as floating balls and orbs in the, in the background is, is beautiful. Uh, do I lock it down to F1.2 very often? No. Probably not. So for me, uh, personally, like F1.8 across the board, that's more than uh, enough for a full-frame body. And if you have a 35, a 45, and an 85, that's a very good prime range. And if they all have image stabilization, that means you're capable of getting a few stops extra in low light if you're shooting stills. That means that you have some in-camera stabilization or some in-lens stabilization for handheld shooting for video. 
And at five ninety nine, that's far less expensive than you would see for a twelve or fifteen hundred dollar Canon thirty five millimeter f one four. And f one eight still looks pretty attractive uh, as a photography lens and as a video lens. You know, try keeping your subject in focus at f one eight if they're moving around at all. That's pretty tough. <laughs> yeah, you aren't kidding. Uh, these are these are very appealing. Uh, I, I guess it's, you know, we talked about branding and, and loyalty. I, even though I had an adapter with the Tamron that I had when I was much younger, uh, I always really liked my Tamron. Uh, so this is appealing. I, maybe I should be looking more into the Tamron range. The other <laughs> sexy lens out there, if you're not familiar with it, is the 18 to 35 from Sigma. Uh, if you remember, Sigma used to be well-known for their really gross kind of coating on their lenses. It looked like somebody had spit, and then they just painted over the top of it. A lot of little, like, loogies all over everything. Uh, both Tamron and uh, Sigma have really improved their design. And the 18 to 35mm f1.8 zoom uh, is for APS-C cameras, but that is a very sexy range uh, for an APS-C body. And I believe Sigma, Sigma also announced the 50 to 100mm f1.8 which is another uh super wide zoom range that's available uh for crop sensor bodies so both of those are very attractive if you only had to buy one zoom for filmmaking uh that would be probably my recommendation for any APS-C shooters it's just a it's a really really good lens for about seven maybe eight hundred dollars might even be able to find it as low as six now the next lens on the lineup here is from Sigma, so we have one Tamron, one Sigma, and this is the Sigma 30 millimeter f1.4. And what's actually interesting about this, it's not that it's a Sigma f1.4 lens, uh, because they've had a 30 millimeter f1.4 in both the original uh, sparkly version that I spoke of with the little loogies on it, to an art version which is the nicer design. Uh, what's interesting about this is actually this is an, a 30 millimeter f1.4 that's made for micro four thirds bodies. Now, how that competes is this is going to be a $339 lens compared to the Panasonic 25mm f1.4, which, you know, arguably is a 50 equivalent on a GH4 body, but that lens will set you back somewhere in the range of $550. So for about $200 less, you're getting a little bit, you know, a 60mm equivalent on a micro four-thirds body, but it's 339 and it's f1.4. Uh, do you think it's worth saving the money, and do you think the focal length change between a 50 equivalent and a 60 equivalent would be that dramatic? Well, it totally totally depends upon what you're trying to shoot, doesn't it? Okay, that just means you have to step back a couple more feet. Yeah, That's 10 all. millimeters, really, you know, what? what is that, like a foot and a half, two feet to change your focal length or focal, yeah. focal framing? Framing, yeah. Uh Sigma, it, it, Sigma and Tamron have really come a long way, and I, I wish that I had more money to buy more lenses. Anybody want to send me some lenses? You just uh, write me for my address. I'm at planetmitch at planet5d.com. I always fear uh, someone just grabbing my camera bag and running <laughs> off with like my Canon L series lenses. Uh, yeah. I, you start doing the math on on the investment there, and you know six L series lenses in a bag. Ooh. Yeah, yeah, it's like eight thousand dollars they could run away with pretty easy. Uh, this yeah, is. Right. Oh, go ahead, Mitch. No, no, no. You finish. I'll ask my question. Uh, this uh, the thing about Micro Four Thirds though that has always really got me excited is each lens is tiny, and even if you get to a crazy 
uh, Prime, like this guy right here, this is the uh, Voigtlander uh, 45 millimeter or 42.5 millimeter F0.95. This is still extremely small and light compared to uh, something like this. So, and the price. Uh, don't forget the price. You can buy an entire set of good primes for Micro Four Thirds body for somewhere in the range of uh, $2,000 or $1,600 if you buy in the used market. That's way cheaper than a set of high-end primes for a Canon or a Nikon body. Now, even Canon's regular price primes like the 51.4, the 35mm f2, the 28f2.8, I think, all those are in the four or $500 range, which is significantly more than most of the equivalent Micro Four Thirds f1.7 through f2 lenses that are available. And that, for beginners, especially if you're shooting video, is a heck of a savings. I mean, you need to put your money into other pots like, I don't know, audio, gear, lighting, and all the other things. So anytime I meet a filmmaker who is thinking about Micro Four Thirds, I show them my body and, and go through the price breakdown, and they're pretty blown away by the difference. And, and well, they should be. <clears throat> You're sick, and here my throat is getting all clogging. I don't know what's going on. I've been drinking hot tea to keep me going, but otherwise it just wants to close up on me. Oh. The question I want to ask is, uh, I saw this just recently, and I apologize because I don't remember where I saw it, but, and I suspect that you know this answer. Maybe. Why are, why are Canon lenses, the expensive L uh, lenses, why are they white? Oh, that's a, it's a cooling issue, actually. Uh, yeah, so, so an interesting uh, tip about... Uh, white lenses was originally because of the way uh, lens elements were made. Uh, they had a certain amount of thermal expansion and contraction. And if you kept the lens black and shot out on a hot day, the thermal rise on the lens body would be upwards of 20 or 30 degrees over ambient, which is very significant when you start thinking about inside the lens, because that is per square inch across the entire barrel and around the diameter of the lens itself. And the elements would swell up and jam the AF system or cause some other things because the clearances are very tight in these lenses. So Canon's initial improvement was to make the lenses white so that they reflected heat as opposed to absorbed heat. And uh, if you're not familiar with the thermal properties of black versus white, as far as sun shining on it, uh, you know, go outside and put your hand on your white car and then put your hand on that dark blue or darker colored car and, and burn away. Uh, that difference ended up being a significant uh, uh, mark for Canon lenses in these shoots. And now, even though they've kind of gotten control of that uh, thermal d uh, change, they still make the lenses white because it's so noticeable that people are just like, look at that white lens right there. That's obviously a Canon shooter. Did I get that about right? I think I did. I bow to you yet again for all of your incredible knowledge. Um, the article did very much go into depth why my brain is not working today i don't know about that very thermal issue but they also mentioned that a lot of people are uh, now starting to either paint their nikon lenses or buy some of those uh, wraps that you can get to make them not be black really so I, yeah so is it know. a significant problem on uh, and i'm not as familiar with nikon's history is it a significant problem on nikon lenses that the af starts to get a little wonky in high temperature know. range? I think 
I think typically that most people or most companies have figured out how to manage that. Uh, I think it's more of a vanity thing now that people <laughs> want the <laughs> or they want. Uh, but there was there was a couple of gals I met at NAB a year or two ago that are selling these lens wraps, and you can you can get your logo or camouflage or all these different kinds of things to make your lens look different. Yeah, the the camo thing I can justify that for someone shooting out in the forest, but. Uh... A lot of the other ones, there's some weird ones where they're like pink or bright colors, and it's just, I, I don't know it, why. Maybe style is everything, uh, and I say that having jonesed over the Olympus Pin F, so I guess I have no room whatsoever to talk. Uh, yes. Moving on to, we've got two other things that I'd like to cover really quick before we get out of here, and I just wanted to touch on this, the Samsung S7. We don't really talk a lot about cell phones, but this cell phone is offering up some very interesting features in terms of A, low light performance, and B, dual pixel AF. Now, Mitch, you wrote about this on Planet 5D. Uh, we've kind of talked about this offline. What do you think about that? Is a $672 phone <laughs> worth that sort of camera performance? <laughs> it's, it's fascinating to me where technology is going and and always interested to see what new is coming out this appears to be now it's it has not been clearly stated by either canon or samsung but it appears to be canon technology that they have put into the sensor they specifically use dual pixel uh, autofocus as the words which is which a trademark I, I think i would suspect is a canon trademark and and i with the with the battles that samsung has had over apple uh, lawsuits left and right over trademarks and stuff. I cannot imagine that they would willingly just go in uh, up against Canon just for the fun of it. So I suspect that this is really Canon technology in there. The demos, if you go to the Planet 5D link, uh, we have a, a video that was recorded uh, comparing the iPhone 6S to the brand new Samsung Galaxy S7. I have to say these names. <laughs> uh, and the autofocus is just phenomenal, phenomenally fast on this camera. The low uh, light performance, too, was really brilliant compared yeah. to the iPhone uh, S6 or 6S, whatever. Dang it, iPhone. <laughs> so watch that video if you're, if you're interested in this. Uh, obviously, I'm an iPhone guy, and I've I've been stuck to Apple forever. So eventually maybe Apple will make a deal. Who knows? Uh, but it's it's just really fascinating to see where this technology is going. Uh, and I'm just stunned at how fast the autofocus is in that demo. It just blew me away. Am I going to switch? No, but... I can't say, Mitch. I do pick my cell phone based on the image quality of the sensor. Uh, this is the... Uh, HTC M8, and it has a very lovely uh, imager in the uh, the camera body. I mean, in the uh, phone body that takes very decent images. Um, I prefer that over getting a cheaper cell phone. So this $672 is a pretty big investment for a brand new phone. And I have camera bodies that I would rather own. Uh, but yeah. that said, 
if you're under contract and this is a hundred and fifty or two hundred dollars upgrade and it can significantly outperform the six S, I mean people really do rely on their cell phone as a, a camera uh, yeah. these days. And the better that camera is, the more attractive a phone will be to them. And plus Samsung's pretty popular. Yeah, it does. I apologize. It does bother me when my iPhone won't focus on what I wanted to focus. And it, and it is relatively slow in focusing. The other thing that, that, that I pointed out is that they don't demonstrate this in the autofocus in video mode. So I don't know yet whether or not this dual pixel AF works in video on the Samsung. Now, I rem- if I remember correctly, isn't the S7 capable of 4K internal shooting as well? Yes. Yes, it is. Wow. <laughs> I mean, yeah. w- what do you even need a GoPro for anymore, right? Or 5D Mark IV, right? Uh, I almost put it in the show notes. There was some wacky uh, uh, Roku or uh, Rickshaw or something like that uh, company that had released yet another uh, action camera. And it was kind of a weird uh, sort of shape like the Sony systems. But I don't know. I don't think action cameras are going to be around much longer with so many of these great uh, point and shoot and other you know cell phone products getting 4K video and having arguably better video than some of these action cameras unless you need extreme underwater support. Now, last thing on my list here, and I forgot to put the name. Oh, go ahead. I, but did you see that this Samsung is waterproof? Uh, yeah, you can take it in the pool. You can take it. I mean, I don't. They didn't say a depth to how far you can go down, but yeah, I think the term would probably be better said as water resistant because yeah, my guess right. with a cell phone, maybe uh, a meter or less in depth before you start getting water penetration, which is you know I three actually, feet. I actually have dreams about taking my phone or, or jumping into a pool accidentally with my phone. I don't know why my brain focuses on that particular thing but it i've dreamt about that it's a fear of mine apparently well i have a friend that works at uh, a verizon store and he has for years he's a manager there and he's like you wouldn't believe how many people come in with a phone that either fell in the toilet or fell in the bathtub and it's like what are you doing with your phone on the toilet where it falls into the toilet and what are you doing with your phone in the bathtub period you know Uh, like are you sitting there surfing the internet on your cell phone well, yep. you're taking a bath and then it just slips yep. out of your soapy hands and falls in the water. So this is probably, there is probably a need for something like this. Uh, and, and it's just weird. Case, by the way, that just came out and I, I just saw the video for it that has a, a silicon loop on the back. Have you okay. seen this? No, I haven't. Tell me more. And you, you slip your fingers in it. And I, I really apologize because I don't know the name of this thing. It's, oh, wait, it's is called- this the phone condom? No, 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 no. Okay. No, 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 no. But it, it, it has, right in the center of the back, there's a silicon loop that you slide your finger in. And you can pick it up by that. And, and so it's, it, from the video, it makes it easier to hold. Like if you were in the tub watching. <laughs> it's not going to slip out of your hand because it's like you've got your fingers in this loop in the back so it makes it easier to hold and it also makes it easier to reach like the top of the phone you know or the bottom of the phone with mm-hmm. your thumb because you can it's it's just it's not going to slip out of your hand and i i gotta buy one of these things because i have this problem where even though i've got a case on it on my iphone 6 plus 
it's just so big I can't reach the top and the bottom and any way off topic, but I gotta keep it. <laughs> All right, last thing on the list here, and I just want to bring this up. I want to apologize to whoever wrote this in because I forgot to put the name in the show notes. But uh, a couple of people have asked me, uh, Devin mentioned this on a previous show, what a macro was. And I've got a link to this in the show notes uh, so you can follow through at the uh, Microsoft homepage. Uh, It basically walks you through the steps. And all we mean when we mention a macro in that particular sense is a set of program commands, keys, or button presses that can happen based on a list that you have saved. So for example, if you are performing a ton of trimming options on a bunch of photos and you needed each one to be cropped to a certain size, you could set up a hotkey that performs the opening via Photoshop, the trimming function, and the closing and saving uh, with whatever numbered name, dash, or what have you that you would like. It's also handy for video game players if you want to set up a command set of keys to perform a task. Say you need to hit three keys in a certain order to shoot some kind of special laser. You could program that to one key so that you press that single key and those three keys are depressed for you. Uh, And you can loop it or what have you to have it continually repeat that action. It's really handy in editing. Uh, There is a uh, processing mode in both Photoshop and Premiere Pro that allow you to perform these sorts of trims, uh, changes, or what have you. And a few examples are in transcoding, uh, file changes, or in batch processing. So if you were, say, shooting raw cinema DNG, and you wanted to apply the same color palette to a thousand photos, you could use this sort of methodology to uh, work through without you having to go individually to each uh, photo and change it. You could do that directly in Photoshop. Or if you wanted to transcode a bunch of files uh, from one format to another and maybe add a watermark to them, you could do that in Premiere Pro. And there are other examples. Basically, the sky's the limit, anything you could think of. Uh, Mitch, do you use any sort of uh, shortcuts like this? Oh, my gosh, TJ. I could not live without my keyboard macros uh on on my so that's a a solid no that's a solid absolutely i use it all the time i'm you may think i'm teasing but no i i have a program on the mac called keyboard maestro okay um and by the way this and this are all keyboard maestro commands i mean i just i'm using my keyboard to play sounds or uh i'm using I don't do any kind of the trim kind of things, although I really need to. Uh, but I've just I've just got gobs and gobs of keyboard macros on my Mac to save me time. And if and if frankly, my opinion is that if you're not learning how to use macros, you're wasting so much of your personal time doing repetitive tasks over and over. I mean. Everybody knows, like on the on the smartphones, and I assume Android does it. On, but on, you know, the type ahead kind of things where it starts trying to predict what you're going to type, or autocorrect to fix words that you don't often use. I mean, I have keyboard commands like to type my email address. Uh, as so, I, I don't I don't know how anybody can function without these things. They're really handy. Um, I use mine more in an editing uh, uh, format, but uh, Mitch is absolutely right. Triggering uh, multi-commands, even just basic commands like uh, Control-C and Control-V 
or squirrely V and squirrely Z if you're or V on a, a Mac. Now, those things will save you a ton of time. And a lot of times you have to type out something over and over again. And if you're wasting that time typing it, you're just, you're eating into your own day. You're, you're ruining what you could be doing in the future with that time for some other project, some other thing. Make sure to, to learn some of these macros and, you know, you don't have to even be able to set one up. A lot of these, like, uh, I believe aren't there downloadable, uh, pre set up versions for uh, keyboard maestro where you could like, Oh, here's a task that everybody loves to do. Absolutely. And there's the same with these macros. There's whole groups and their .mhm files. You can find things to do all sorts of handy stuff, things that you wouldn't even thought were handy until you need to actually do that, like file renaming tasks. Have you ever had a crap load of files that you need to deliver in a folder and they need to be named one through whatever and they need to be named with the project? You know, imagine going through and renaming 150 files. That is tedious work. But if you can just push a button and plus one it in the command, it will continually rename all those files. And this is very similar to what we used to do in the old days in batch files, if you are familiar with a batch file. And in DOS, you just set up a bunch of things that you want to happen, and then you hit enter, and it does it for you and takes care of everything. Uh, Well worth the investment. you have anything to add to that, Mitch? Well, there's another program I use on the Mac called Typinator. Uh, There's a couple of different ones, obviously, for keyboard macros, but... Typeinator is purely aimed at uh, text-based things. Like I said, my email address. I I type C5D, and Typeinator re re <laughs> what's the word I'm looking for? It replaces that with Canon 5D Mark II, right? So all I have to do is type C5D or PM dot is Planet Mitch or you know all these different things that I type all the time. I have shortcuts for every single one of them because if I typed out Canon EOS 5D Mark II every time I needed to type it in a blog post, I'd be 55 years older than I am now. Uh, the other thing that's uh, really handy, and I'll bring this up really quick. Uh, I'll put a link to this in the show notes. Uh, this is pcpro or per dot com. Uh, they have some interesting how tos on using some of the uh, mechanical keyboards with glowing backgrounds. So mm-hmm. on top of programming your keys to do certain things, uh, you can also program those to correspond with color changes uh, underneath of the keys. So if you are trying to accomplish a, some sort of color change for play and stop, for example, or if you change your cursor to a cut tool as opposed to a drag tool, you could have it change colors so that you are aware of what you are in while you're working on that. And those combinations really speed up your workflow and shortcut keys and macros in general will make you a much better editor, a much faster editor. And the more work you can get done, the more money you can make. Amen. Great tip. Thank All right. You. On that note, guys, one last time, be sure to swing over to dslrfilmnoob.com slash cinesummit and check that out. March 1st and 2nd, 10 directors will be sharing their stories and information with you. Uh, that is free March 1st and 2nd. Free dslrfilmnoob.com slash cinesummit. Mitch, you have anything else before we get out of here? It's free. It's, <laughs> it's free. And if you don't make time to do that, uh, maybe you're not a director. Maybe you think, oh, I don't need to learn what directors are learning. But if you take time to learn, maybe you're just a cinematographer. If you know more about the director's job, you'll be a better cinematographer. So make time to do those things 
And they also have a great back catalog of other uh, uh, lectures and topics that if you want to cover cinematography or some of the other things that are out there, they've been going for five years strong and lots of good stuff there. Myself, you can find me at DSLRFilmNoob.com or on Twitter at DSLRFilmNoob. Mitch, where can people find you? Planet 5D. Planet 5D.com, PlanetMitch.com. Twitter is PlanetMitch. I'm all over the places. You know, I have my own universe, so just find me anywhere. I'm about to drink a small bottle of NyQuil and pass back out on the couch. But before I do that, remember to write a review on iTunes. SoundCloud is where you can find us as well as anywhere podcasts are distributed. Uh, When you leave a question, leave it in the YouTube comments, and that will make it really easy for Mitch and I to find. Always follow the show links to find out more about all the things that we talk about because I spend a lot of time putting those together as well as Mitch working on those. So thank you, sir, for your hard work. We will see you next time on another exciting episode of DSLR Film Noob Finding the Button Podcast. (laughs) 